Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. I'm so happy to have Eric Freitas and Derek Jones on the Film Situation Podcast. Welcome, Eric and Derek. Yo. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you're not the first person to put that together. Eric. Uh, I just realized as I was saying it out loud. <laughs> and you guys good. spell it practically the same, except you just have a D in front. Like it's you have yeah. Eric with the E R I C K. Yeah. And, Which and both spellings are rare in itself. So it's interesting. It was like it was it's fate that we're linking up and making comic books together. So there you go. I guess tell us tell give the audience a little bit of an introduction about yourselves and then how you guys first linked up. Okay. My name is Eric Freitas. I am I've been working in film and comic books for man 10, 10 to 15 years. Like I don't even want to do the math right now. And my main gig is I'm a film and TV union location scout, meaning I, I do union jobs mostly, which means the job, the shows on TV. I've worked on Wolf of Wall Street, The Affair, Younger, Search Party. I'm currently working on FBI's Most Wanted. The movie Hustlers you did too, right? Did Hustlers, that's right. Yeah, did Hustlers. That was a good, that was a good movie. That was fun to work on. I didn't get to scout not one strip club. Someone else got to do that. So, but, but it was still very fun to, to work on. And uh, yeah, other than that, I also, I act, write, and direct as well. Over the years, I've done my own, written and directed some of my own projects. I've also been fortunate enough to, some of my writing to work out in the comic book world. I've worked on Judge Dredd, Regular Show, Godzilla, Ninja Turtles. I've cre- helped create original concepts like Amazing Forest. There's a Gimme That Mummy that me and Derek actually worked on a couple years ago. Uh, there's other weird little space comic called Ort. And most recently, it was a horror comic that I'm proud of. Came out on TKO Comics, came out in 2021, called Killiamsburg, which is Williamsburg with a K. It's a great and, title. And, um, yeah, it's about killer snowmen attacking Williamsburg. That I is. dig it. So yeah, you, that little log line alone lets you know my style of thinking approach to art and creativity. So yeah, and I guess... Now I'm working on this project, Urges, with uh, Derek. Here we are. How about yourself, Derek? My name is Derek Jones. I've been illustrating comics probably about 10 years now. Flipping between like illustrating comics and then just doing just illustration gigs and just making my own illustrations, making my own merch. I'm just always bouncing. I'll do a comic and then go do a couple other stuff and then I'll come back and do another comic and just jumping all, all around. But uh, yeah, man, the last couple of years have been like an actual push to just really focus on the craft of making comics and getting better at comics and just, just getting better at just storytelling. Really trying to just like, okay, let's stay focused on this one, not this one thing, but just let's hammer it in. Let's let's leave behind some good looking books and uh, do the damn thing hard. So yeah, me and Eric, we've worked together a couple of times in the past and uh, this, we linked back up and we we're both just kicking things back and forth and we we're like, I watched, what was it, Raw? That I forget the French lady's name that made Raw. But I watched that, and then I watched the Hulu show Candy. And for some odd reason, I was just like, vampires? I don't know. I was like, let me, next time we got on the phone, we talked like every like Tuesday. And I was like, hey, man, how you feel about like a vampire love story? And Eric's like, okay, like it's been done like a billion times. I'm like, yo, but it's like girls, dog. <laughs> okay. And uh, we just—it's a great just... impression, by the way. Oh yeah, Eric's very stoic. <laughs> but yeah, we just started just like kicking shit back and forth, and it, it was really awesome, man. I've never—I've always been just like a hired hand for stuff, and it's been really sweet to just be like in a tennis court essentially with somebody and just like ping pong and ideas back and forth, and it just—it just makes me feel like so much better about the project. I don't mind spending twelve hours a day now on this stuff and losing sleep and, and everything to make this stuff seen because like we both have our stamp on and i think eric's kind of been in the same situation too where it's like you're in the driver's seat but not really in the driver's seat and so i feel like this project is definitely both of us just taking the reins and going hog wild yo nice man and derek where are you from i'm originally i so i'm originally from virginia but i lived in philly for the past like eight years and now i'm out in chicago okay cool how do you like it over there I like Chicago a lot. When I was in Philly, I liked Philly, but I also hated Philadelphia's like guts. Like I felt like you got very uh, Philly was a place where like you can't be openly happy. You know what I mean? Interesting. But, yeah, you get persecuted for that because everyone's not happy there. And like in Chicago, people are like, "Hey, what's going?" You're like walking down the street, 
everyone's just mad nice. So it's it's great, man. It's it's pretty good, and it's also a comics town. So it's rad. Nice. Yeah. They've got deep dish pizza. Man, that shit's like Philly cheesesteaks, man. Nobody eats that. No one that like lives here. You don't <laughs> eat that more than like like once a year because that shit is crazy. It's pretty good though. It's I like so it. Good. But the Detroit style is better. I don't even know what Detroit style is. What is Detroit style pizza? Picture like focaccia bread, but with like cheese, marinara, and like pepperonis on top. Okay. Like a sponge, like eating a sponge. It's like little little Caesars. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. And so, how did you guys first meet? We met at. I don't know if you're familiar with SPX, the Small Press Expo. Where is it, Derek? Is it Baltimore, Virginia? What? Where is it? Maryland. In Maryland, okay. Um, it's in Maryland. It's it's this small press expo, which is like a Comic Con where no major publishers are allowed. So it's all like indie and lower artists, and it's really cool because you see a lot of original work, people taking big swings and risks, and because they don't have a publisher hanging over them saying, "Oh, we're not going to be able to sell copies if you make this type of decision with your characters and things like that." So a lot of original work, which is really cool. And I was working with another artist at the time, Ulysses Ferenas, and he was going, I came along and he said, yo, you're probably on this guy, Derek. And I said, I don't know about that. We'll see. And lo and behold, we, we were in our twenties, we're drinking beers in the hotel room. Derek shows up and I tell Ulysses, you're dead wrong. I don't like this guy. I never want to hang out with him again. And um, yeah, no, it, we all hit it off pretty quickly. We're, we all have similar backgrounds, even though we're from different states. And, and yeah, we just hit it off. We had, we, me and Derek tend to have a little more of a fucked up sense of humor and people in comic books essentially just like leaving comic books year after year, but we maintained ours. So, yeah. uh, and that's where we met. And we didn't even really, we worked together maybe on one little project here, one little project there. We were both just doing our thing, but it was at these comic cons, you're always looking for a friendly face because like every comic con, big, small, it's like first day of lunch in high school where you're like, look for a friendly face to, so you don't look like the dork. Can you imagine this? So you don't look like the dork at the comic con. So, so you're looking for a friendly face so you can stand next to them. And then once you have found one or two people to stand next to, you can breathe fucking easy that you're not going to just be fucking alone for three, three days. <laughs> but with that said yeah so like we we would see each other at cons and we would always link up and maybe I, he would call me a few times or we would talk sometimes about his stories or i would talk to him about my stories but uh, yeah so that, that's just like how it went and i know eric from working together on indie films yeah most recently working together on westway which we still have a couple more days at least one more day to shoot with you eric yeah i'm i've been waiting your phone call sir Absolutely. We're just, I've been waiting for a couple of other people too, but now, yeah, within the next month, we'll definitely be getting going again. Oh, awesome. Love you. Always ready. Always ready. Oh, I had a blast last time getting up possessed. Yeah. There's a table incident, but we'll talk about that later. I don't know if I told you about that. So that the makeup artist yeah. spilled when I guess she was taking off your makeup, she uh -huh. spilled acetone Ooh. on that table Partially my fault. I took responsibility for it. She offered to the homeowner was like freaking out over the table. I guess it was like a family sort of heirloom. Ooh. To make a long story short, I told the makeup artist, don't worry about it. It's, it's on me. I told you to set up on that table. I'm taking responsibility for it. And right now the table is in New Hampshire of all places. I had to send it up to New Hampshire where I have a specialty wood guy refinishing and lacquering that table. Oh my god! I know. So it's it was definitely some behind the scenes drama at that location. Like after I left at four a.m., there was drama. It was, no, it was like no, it was a couple of days later that I got the phone call about that. Oh yeah. Oof. So that sucks. See, Derek, that's the shit you don't have to worry about. You're all cozy in, in your room, drawing, and like you, you could draw a fucking table, and if you break it in your fucking drawing, no one's gonna call you in three days. And fucking motherfuck you to death to fix the table. It's so Derek, yeah. you do storyboards for films? Is that right? Who, me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mostly for Eric's stuff. I, it's one of those mediums that, like, I definitely want to explore. But every time I look into it, it's not. 
you got to really know your it's not like you got to know cameras like the different types of lenses like the different types of uh, special shots and everything which i'm pretty attuned to just because i've watched films and i work in a a visual medium but i've looked at other like professional storyboards and i'm like dang man these guys like i I gotta i gotta get like a dictionary apparently to do this shit but uh, yeah it's something i wouldn't overcomplicate it as long as I, i feel like if you have an understanding of aspect ratios i make storyboards usually when i commission a storyboard artist is when I want to show something to a client. But man, like I make storyboards that are literally fucking like stick figures and things like that just to show the crew member. As long as, think of it, it's just a communication device. Mm -hmm. So the crew or whoever else is involved in the production of, okay, this is basically what we're going for. This is the competition that we're going for. And so they don't actually (laughs) have to be fancy, but unless you're doing some sort of mock-up to show like a client or something like that, there's a lot of time. Like if you look at Scorsese's storyboards from taxi driver, they're similar to the stuff that I draw. Sometimes I just draw straight up stick figures and just crazy looking like chicken scratch, but it, but it's enough to like the crew then understands, Oh, okay. That's what it is. And I don't storyboard every scene, but it depends on if it's more, there's more precision things. Have you seen uh, Rob McCallum's storyboards? No. That dude, oh man, you can print those bad boys. Oh, yeah, they're amazing. Everything. But actually, speaking of storyboards, I got the, what you're saying, this is why well, it would be stupid to show it because it's the visual, but I got Parasite by Bong Joon Ho. Yeah. But his storyboards are like, I was like, I was really stoked to get this book. And it's just garbage. It's just like stick figures and like napkins <laughs> and shit. <laughs> I was like, dude, why did they print this? <laughs> that is what I love that they printed that actually. I would, per, as a director, I'd like to see that because. <laughs> look at the presentation. Kind of, thing. Yeah, it looks amazing. It's beautiful and look what it's filled with. Just, just... They, they got us. Yeah, okay. So it's, yeah. The kind of garbage. Stuff, the kind of stuff that there's even programs that do things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. It's so cool. Just it's cool understanding. I think distilling stories down to the most succinct kind of things that they could be, and I think that's yeah. what you guys also have an edge on the comic book situation. Like, if I a friend of mine, my friend Jeff Duncanson, that was actually DPing on Westway, Eric. Yep. He was like, Zeph, you're probably such a good editor." Because you read so many comics as a kid and you were reading stories that had to be really concise because they were comic book format. So I think there's something there, honestly. I never thought of it that way. Until oh, there, there totally is. Uh, the comic book format made me a better writer because you have 20 pages and you have one to five or six panels per page. So you really have to boil every boil. You don't have as much real estate. So you have to boil everything down to the best possible story oh my god why is this gonna... sorry guys <laughs> oh my god oh, good. Uh, unprofessional motherfucker. <laughs> i'm joking i'm joking you really have to boil it down to the most like basic idea so like the dialogue has to be on point and has to oh, has to push everything forward and it has to uh, the whole story has to be contained where every page turn it feels like another beat of the story. Like you, at the end of that page, it doesn't have to be like, oh, a gun appears at the last panel, but that last panel to the next page, you don't want to lose your reader, even casually. You don't want him throwing the fucking comic book in the garbage, but you also don't want him to be like, all right, I'll finish this later. You want, you're trying to fight for their attention in a lot of ways. Yeah, I I learned a lot from dealing with that over the years. And Eric, did you grow up reading comics from a really young age? Or? I was a spinner rat kid, meaning I was, when my mom would take me to New York City, I would buy a lot of comic books and things like that off the spinner rack. So I wouldn't say I was one of those kids that uh, that bought every issue of everything in order. I was more of the kid that went to the spinner rack and whatever covers look cool, I would buy. And just so happened, like, I was Deadpool versus Cable. It, it was X-Men, Chris Claremont's X-Men, things like that. It was like that time of the world. I had a lot of that. And ever since then, I would say I come and go over the years. I probably took a long break in my 20s, but then I came back when I started getting more writing gigs. And now I'm, I read a lot of comic I I line, when I say comic books, graphic novels, I can't stand having the floppies around my house because I don't know what to do with it. 
but I, I do a nice graphic novel with a spine to it. Yeah, good to know. Yeah, I read a lot of comics when I was a kid, and then after I was twelve, so my my where my grandparents lived, there was this place on the Upper West Side called West Side Comics, and they would sell these grab bags for mm. five bucks. And it was just, it was closed and you couldn't see like what was inside, but you'd get a whole shitload of comics. And mm. so I built like a pretty large collection from from a pretty young age. You know, I was reading X-Men and Silver Surfer and X-Factor, all kinds of stuff. And then rare stuff, like there was like Fish Police or whatever, like just mm. just getting exposed to all kinds of different comics, like The Punisher. And so I remember eating just, and I'm sorry. Those, those grab bags are dangerous because sometimes like, you get some heat. You get like a whole run for like four dollars. Like, oh shit, I'm going back. It's like gambling. Like, I got yeah, it was it. great. I yeah, and then it was incredible. But what happened was, when I was twelve, my parent, like my comic book collection, got lost essentially in a move. Like my parents moved, and then somehow it just mysteriously got lost, which is sucked, and it was devastating. And so then it just took me off the comic trail for the rest of the time. <laughs> that happened Pokemon cards. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting on gold, baby. In the yeah. That's funny. But I always wish that co- collection went to some. I hope it didn't get thrown out. I hope like some other kid found it. I think it got left in the attic of my parents' house. Jesus. Um, I think that's what happened. Damn. Yeah. It sucked. <laughs> You're going to do. Yeah. You probably had some real winners. I was just talking to a guy yesterday and he had all, he had the first appearance of Wolverine, the first appearance of Venom, the first appearance of Carnage, stuff that he bought as a kid. He just was smart enough. As oh a kid. yeah. I had a lot of that stuff. I had uh, X Factor number one. I remember like having Spawn number one, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. T- yeah. The, the first, I, from what I understand, the first Spawn is not totally a collector's item unless it has a barcode on it. Interesting. Um, yeah, we were like buying like the death of Superman, like when that came out and like that kind of stuff. And it was an exciting time where it felt like, I don't know, maybe it's still an exciting time. I have no idea because I'm so out of the loop. Yeah, no, it's to me, comics books is comic books is a weird industry because it's weird because there's not a lot of money. So there's not a lot of money in it. So there so decisions really have to be made on what gets published and what doesn't. And the real creative lifeline in comic books is really either really low budget publishers or self-publishing because these there are these comic book companies that like appear and then disappear. They're like, we're going to be the image comics of today. And they spend a lot of money and then they're like, they're gone in under three years because it's just a, it's a very, it's very hard industry to explain to people if you're not pitching Marvel or DC. It's a very hard thing for people to accept for whatever reason. To me, it's not hard. It's just, oh, this is fiction. I like fiction. I'll read a play from Shakespeare right now. I'll read a a comic book tomorrow. You know what I mean? To me, it's the same thing. I I just like story. But it's been weird. And that's why me and Derek decided, like we were pitching and pitching and pitching our projects we did together, projects we didn't do together. And we just got so frustrated and we're getting older and we were just getting frustrated and we just came to the conclusion we have to like self-publish. And it wasn't like we were doing, I can't even say we were doing that. We didn't come to that decision because we were some type of mavericks being brilliant. No, it just seems like everyone that is doing anything in comic books self-publishes. And if you want to do your creator own stuff, you're going to have to self-publish. And you're going to have to prove yourself in that world. And then the publishers come knocking. What do you think, Derek? Yeah, man, I agree with everything. It's, it is such an, like this odd industry where they don't just outright tell you like the, the story for the longest was like, okay, break into Marvel and DC or like Dark Horse, do your time over there, then take your, take whatever audience you can from there over to like your self-published stuff. That, that was like the model for the longest time. But now it seems just like, hey, just start pulp, like self-publishing your stuff, just any way to get it out, any way that you can do it. Because uh, we actually, when we pitched Urges, we got 
the first story that we pitched, we got some people back that were like, yeah, we like this and we would like to do something with it. And, but the numbers that they offered us were just like, Crazy. you know, so low that it was just like, dude, we would be, we did the math. Me and Eric literally sat on the phone because we were going to take it. We were literally like, all right, dude, let's just bite that. Let's just eat it. And then we crunched the numbers. I was like, man, we'd be really eating it. <laughs> like, <laughs> <there's no> reason- <laughs> this is like dumb to do this. This is so stupid to do this. And so we just backed off and we're just like, you know, maybe this next one we do, we do something. Then we just, you know what, dude, let's just screw it. Let's just try the self-publishing thing. Let's just see what happens. I think there's a really similar comparison to making an indie film. How many filmmakers have made either a half a million dollar film or a million dollar film to then sell it to a distribution company that's paying them like 50 grand with a maybe you're going to get more money on the back end. And then that money obviously never comes. Yeah, very. The distributor part is the, I would say the distributor is the publisher in our world. And surprise. Derek, you're going to be surprised to hear this. The publishers and comic book companies are a little more honest than distributors in the indie film world. Distributors. Really? Oh, yeah. It, indie film distributors are notorious scumbags. Yeah. <laughs> notorious scumbags. Yeah. So, Obviously, like, there's exceptions to the rule, but yeah, it's they call uh, creative Hollywood accounting for a reason. Yeah. Right. So, for example, what they'll do is they'll take your indie movie and they'll distribute it and then tell you, hey, you never made a dollar because we had to spend money on this and this. So you're, you're never going to get a check. Thank you for your movie. Goodbye. And there's major movies that supposedly yeah. never made money. Yeah. I yeah. heard about I heard it was Johnny Depp that was like suing like a long time ago for like, he'd never been paid for like Pirates of the Caribbean. Or I think somebody else was like Orlando Bloom was suing for Lord of the Rings and shit. Like, what? Yeah. Yeah. The Those were made jillions. Yeah, especially if the Weinsteins at the height of their power, forget it. There, and there's countless people like that. Oh, yeah. Kevin Smith said that he went to Khan during the height of Pulp Fiction and Clerks. Like they wanted to bring him and Tarantino out there. And they did. And they, they got him a yacht and they were going to parties in a sick hotel room, dinners. He said it was the best time of his life. And then like a com- couple months later, he's waiting for his residual checks. He gets it and it's either nothing or less than nothing. And uh, he asked what's up and they show him the accounting bill. They charged him everything at cons to his residual checks. Right. And they were like, wow. they're like, what? It's part of the marketing budget. You going out there. And that's the shit that can happen. See, a publisher would never do that. You know why a publisher would never do that? Because my original point, there's not a lot of money in comic books. You know yeah. what I mean? Most no. of the will do. Taking out yachts on the French Riviera, you're telling me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The most the publisher will do is possibly, if they're in a good mood, go to Comic Con and buy two hot dogs. No, no, no. They will. I'll give an honest answer, but that's funny because it, it is some of that. <laughs> they, they will pay for your hotel room and maybe your floor. Uh, not really. Mostly they will pay, they'll pay for your hotel room at Big Con, maybe. And maybe ish, even less your flight. Unless you're like, obviously, if you're Frank Miller, Alan Moore, I don't even know what kind of deals they have, but I'm sure they're not fucking leaving their house for. Yeah. It's it's fucking depressing, man. When you really think about like your industries and stuff, you're just like, Jesus Christ. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, but you can't get hung up on that because you still, there's still, you got to do it for the joy of doing it, which you guys clearly, obviously we're not, in the film industry, not into comics, because this is the way of a direct path of just making crazy amounts of money. Otherwise, get into finance or hedge funds or something. Yeah. But you're doing it because you're passionate about storytelling. The question is, could do indie comics connect with audiences? And how does that work? I would say yes you're almost like a politician when you're like shaking hands and kissing babies for every person that you get and you earn those instagram followers a lot of times i've flyered wrestling shows for my other comics i've done things like hey get it get a free this if you show me you follow me on insta like stuff like that and i'd say that i'll let me help your question out really what you really want to do because you can have a comic with I'd say mediocre buzz and it's doing well and people respect it, but it's not like killing it, but it gets the attention of an assistant of a producer 
because right now another thing that's truth about true about the comic industry it, or the indie comic industry a lot of this is just spec material for producers and like netflix and everyone else there are so many movies and series that are out there that people don't even realize come from comic books and yeah i was going to segue into that as well so many of them and yeah. there's the obvious ones just walking dead marvel yeah. you, get, you get all that but then there's other ones that my wife will watch an entire series of something. And I'm like, oh, that was a comic book, right? Like, oh, really? And then, but the way she says, oh, really? And I love my wife. She has great taste. Let's me know that she'll never read the comic book. <laughs> yeah. Not everybody reads them. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys would know more about this than I do, but I had a friend of mine that was telling me that in Japan, many people read comic. It's like a way of life over there. And it's not just comic books the way people think of them over here, but they just read their fiction in almost a graphical comic style format. And there's all kinds of stories and all kinds of graphic novel depict. Is that something that you guys are familiar with? Yeah, dude, Japan and France. I literally went to France last year and it's, it's like they read their top selling books are always comics. Same with Japan. Like, because they just, they, they just have this, like, it's treated as like a real art form where over here it's treated as like childish entertainment where like over the, look, I literally just got all these from France. Like these are essentially issues of comics and they're all hardcover. Like they treat, this is an art to them. This isn't just fucking around. Like I was in the comic book stores there and 70 year old men are coming in, shuffling in, buying their comics and leaving. So it's, it's a different like we're the only ones that treat this it's like like throwaway garbage and everyone else is just no this is like cool shit this is great and they yeah. mine stuff like japan especially japan's whole entertainment industry is based off of mangas like they all start as mangas no they don't just make animes just to be like hey i got this cool idea they're like no go read shonen and find us our next anime you know what i mean what is a manga for somebody for the lay person that's not really familiar with it Manga is just Japanese comics. Gotcha. And then Bandesine is French comics. Then I think sometimes, quite honestly, for the, somebody that even wants to, it's such a scene with the comic book situation that sometimes it's not always inviting to the outside person. You guys are sort of on the inside of it, so it's a little maybe, but you mentioned it, you touched upon it before, Eric, you were looking for a like-minded person, so you're not alone. And I'm not saying it's like, I don't know enough about that world, but I know enough that there's been, there was at least a couple of occasions where I wandered into a comic store and in Manhattan. And I remember one time I was dressed nice and I was just looking, I was asking the guy about what graphic novels were good. He said, they're not good investments, by the way. And I'm like, I'm not fucking asking if it's a good investment here to buy it. Cause I want to resell it on eBay. I just wanted to buy something interesting to read because I'm interested in stories. <laughs> but he was so standoffish about just me asking you instead of welcoming. And, and listen, granted, obviously there's different people. That's an anecdotal sort of thing. But I've also encountered that at other places. And I'm sure record stores could be the same sort of way. Like you could have some people that are cool and more accommodating and some people that are a little bit more. Yeah, it can be. There's I there's a part of me that kind of knows what you're saying. I think what really happened, this is surprising to me a lot of times, is a lot of times the people that work at these stores don't want to discuss comic books with you. And I don't think it's, I think it's just because every, maybe all day, every day, people come in and ask them these questions and they want to like nerd out with them. Some comic book stores are built around that culture. Some comic book stores, you're going to have the owner talking to you about this. He's read everything. He's done everything. Sometimes that same very welcoming comic book store, that owner is talking about everything and anything except for comic books. Like that happens too. And I would also, and then there's some stores, I would say, what's that Long Island store, Derek? Uh, the oh, Escape Pod. Escape Pod Comics. The owner there, is, is, I when I go there, the few times I'm out there in Huntington, New York, I drop at least a hundred bucks because he's read everything and he'll like curate recommendations to my taste. I'm like, bro, you know what I like? Just let's spend a hundred bucks. And what would I, and I'm always happy with what he tells me. And then other, I'm, I'm sorry. 
I said, I want to give him a shout out, but I'm going to butcher his name. But if you're in Long Island, go to Escape Pod Comics. Yeah. Good. And also, also, I also would like to shout out my boy Jeff in Montclair, New Jersey for uh, Eastside Mags. Also, he's another good guy. He runs a good comic book shop. But yeah, a lot of these comic book shops, they, it, they, I've asked the same question that you probably asked, Zeph. Like, hey, what's the new hot, I literally said this, what's the new hot graphic novel, indie graphic novel everyone's reading? And I look like I annoyed the person by asking that. Yeah. And then, like, so it's not just me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. There's a comic book store in my neighborhood called Aw oh, Yeah Comics in Harrison. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's right down the block from, from where I live. Oh, so yeah. you know him, Derek? Yeah, they're sick. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a pretty cool store. I'm scared, yeah, yeah. To go, I'm scared to go in there too often because I get too into things. If I start buying comics again, then I'll become like a full fanatic. Yeah. <laughs> it happened to me a couple of years ago. I was like, I'm going to start buying like floppies again. I started buying them going comic book. I was like, I just wanted the joy of going to a comic book shop every Wednesday to follow a series. I just wanted that experience. Right. So I, I started going and I started buying and my bathroom gets filled up with comics. My room starts getting filled with comics. My car starts having comics. I was like, this is too much. And on top of it, most weekly series suck. They just fucking suck. So I'm not only am I creating clutter in my house or my apartment. That's my biggest pet peeve, Eric, about being a... F That's the only thing I hate about filmmaking is that it just requires so many fucking items. <laughs> and I own oh. items to shoot literally a feature film, but it just requires me keeping them all. Yeah, yep. it definitely does. That's one of the, honestly, when I was in my early 20s and I was deciding what aspects of film I was going to pursue, the reason why I like writing is I was looking at all my friends who want to like be camera. And I was like, and I couldn't believe how much money and how often they had to spend money. And Oh like, yeah, film filmmaking is an expensive habit. Yeah, it really is. So when I was like, I'm going to be a writer because all I need is a laptop and, and if I don't even need that. I just need a pen really. <laughs> so I'm going to do that. There's more to that. Obviously I was very connected to the story, but that was definitely a thought when I was really thinking about what should I specialize in. Trust world. me when I'm humping all these C stands around, I'm like, why don't I just become a writer? <laughs> C stands. Oh, yeah. I lug those around. Yeah. Those like the things that like fold out. Yeah, like heavy duty light so, answer, like the multi. They look like tripods, but they're not. Yeah. Yeah. They're the heavy. I had to lug that shit around when I was helping some friends out on a shoot. <laughs> I wanted to murder them. I was like, you guys just hired me just because you don't want to do this right now. <laughs> yeah. People don't realize how close filmmaking is to manual labor. Oh, yeah. I tell, so I mentor film <laughs> students and I always tell them, like, hey, listen, this is physical. There's a physical aspect of filmmaking there really is but, but obviously if you're scorsese you don't have to worry about that it's all fucking laid out for you but are you guys stoked for his the next his next movie yeah flowers of the killer moon yeah for sure i heard it got a really rave reviews it just premiered a can oh Did, yeah wasn't there a switcheroo with one of the actors at one really? point was there there was yeah a, I, I think, think Ke i'm sorry he was gonna be in it Keanu dropped out. Keanu Reeves was in it? I think so. I, I cannot picture Keanu Reeves being in a Scorsese movie for some reason. It's like hard to it's hard to compute that for some I don't think it was Keanu Reeves. You might be right, but who knows? It could have been. I think it was I'm I'm not a film journalist, people listening, so take this for a grain of salt. I think Leonardo DiCaprio couldn't do it for some reason. Or no, he's in it. DiCaprio is definitely in it. <laughs> Brendan Fraser's in it. Nero is also in it. Jesse Plemons is in it. Or is yeah, that Jesse Plemons is in it? Is that his acting name or is that his name in Breaking Bad? No, that is his <laughs> actual act. Okay, I always oh, forget. <laughs> it seems like it could be, right? Yeah. Uh, I think you're thinking of Jesse. That's like Walter's sidekick. Is yeah. that Jesse? So it gets confusing yeah. there. But yeah. <laughs> Mad close. That's funny. But yeah, he's one of my favorite actors. So. Yeah, he's great. As you can tell, because I barely remembered his name, but yeah, I really yeah, do. He's really ascended from the creepy dude from Breaking Bad, and now he's getting all these. It was roles. the best part of Power of the Dog to me, if you saw that. Oh, yeah, that was good. The James Campion film. I didn't love it, 
but I, it was definitely like a respect. I respect it and I like it. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. It just, I didn't really understand the message of the movie. Was the message like, hey, if you're secretly gay, a gay person may kill you. And it's a spoiler alert, but I don't, I didn't really understand what the, what they're like, I don't know. I can shit on them. Not shit, but I can criticize that movie all day and I don't want to right now. Yeah. I yeah. Like, I know. You're <laughs> yeah, but it was a well-made film for sure. Not always easy to watch, but a well-made film. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And, and, and I'm sorry, Derek. I love gay cowboys. It needs to be more. Every ten years, they got to make one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we're gonna segue to the second portion of the podcast, which is we're gonna discuss a scene, like one of your favorite movie scenes of all time. And I know Eric. You did your homework and you sent me one. Derek, shame on you. You didn't send one ahead of time. Oh, my <laughs> I, bad. All good. I like it. It's going to be spur of the moment. Um, oh, yeah. So, Eric, Fight Club. Yeah. Incredible film. Directed by David Fincher. Starring Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. If somebody hasn't seen Fight Club, what are they doing listening to this podcast? Yeah. And the scene in question... I can tell us a little bit about the scene. Well, the, the scene, uh, how about, because I'm assuming we're all, I'm talking to all film people. I'll uh, not only explain the scene, but I'll explain where I was in my life. I was about 15, 16 years old, and it was a Saturday morning, and I rented Fight Club VHS-style Palmer video. You know what I'm talking about. And Was, it, I, was that when it came out, the year after it came out? About, yeah. I didn't see it in theaters because I thought it looked like a regular shitty action movie. Because the trailers, if you remember, anyone that lived through the Fight Club experience remembers that when Fight Club was very heavily misdirected with their how they were advertising it, it felt like it was almost purpose. But yeah, we'll get into that. I did see it in theater. I was first year of college, so I was 18 years old, saw it with my college roommates, and it fucking blew me away. That's so cool that you had the the actual theater experience. But it was Saturday morning. And the movie just kept blowing my mind, scene after scene. And this is the first scene, because the ending blows your mind. But this is the first scene I remember, I felt the molecules change in my body. And it's when Brad Pitt, Tyler Durden, goes into this convenience store and brings out this like sad sack of a worker, puts a gun to his head and takes his license and says, what would you do? What did you really want to do with your life? And why aren't you doing it in so many words? And I just remembered that, sinking that feeling that philosophy sinking in me deeply like in your fingertips like i've never had an experience like that watching a movie since i've come close there's been some great epiphanies but nothing like that and that right there it was the beginning of me realizing i wanted to work in film and story for the rest of my life and it also made me realize that like i i've always had this deep fear because I have immigrant parents, and I think, Zeph, I think we talked about this, you do too. Same here. And immigrant parents are, like, hard workers. They more also, pragmatic. Yeah, they're more pragmatic. And they also, but they don't so much believe in, dreams are nice, but eventually you have to get back to the real world. That's what I mean by being pragmatic. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely, that's a, that's probably is the better way to put it. And uh, No, but that's true. Yeah, that's that that was my experience as well, man. And so being raised that way and they're great parents no complaints but being raised that way and seeing that moment it made me realize i've had this like fear of getting older because i was worried that eventually i would just have to get a job i hate and work really hard at it and seeing that was like the first time i've ever heard saw something phrased in a way that tore those walls down in my mind Mm -hmm. and ever since then like Ever since then, I've always pushed myself to be living my life as much as much as possible to do what I want to do within reason. Like, obviously, I'm not completely living off my id and just running around acting crazy, but I'm very... You're not holding up a comedian store just so that you could follow up with them a year to see if they've changed their life around? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, a lot of my life decisions and like I, because when you ask me that question, favorite movie scene, favorite can be interpreted a lot of ways. And my, if you're not asking me critically, what is the best movie scene? You're asking me personally, what is my favorite scene? And favorite to me personally means what affected me the most. 
And I have probably scenes that I like watching more than this one, but it's undoubtedly, this is the scene that affected me the most and not only creatively, but like personally. Yeah, really impactful film. I remember it so vividly, just how I felt like that was a game-changing film. And all I'd seen around, I, I don't even remember if I'd saw, seen the trailers for the film, but I'd seen, I used to hang out in the city. I used to go to like punk and hardcore shows, like CBG, oh. things like that. Right. And I remember hanging out my, with my friends at Ray's Pizza, like on St. Mark's Place, and then seeing just a poster that said Fight Club and it had a bar of soap. And I'm like, what is this? It just looked intriguing. And I had to see a movie called Fight Club. It just, just the title drew me in. Very punk rock. Yeah. Yeah. I had Very... that got into a lot of fights. So, <laughs> so I wanted to see I... food. for Eric based off of that. Then did that make you want to go fight? Cause you did MA and stuff for a little bit. Was that also a yeah. precursor to that? Yeah. A hundred percent was. It really yeah. was. It made it also like the fight club scenes made me want to do that. And in fact, we even started a fight club in my school. Where, yeah, we started a fucking. Yeah, there club. were fight clubs that popped up after that movie. After yeah. for sure. I know they were all over the place. For sure. We bring out a blue tarp to the middle of the woods, and that was our ring. And we would have three five minute rounds, I think, and we would just fight. No, no gloves, nothing. And, uh, and we did it two weeks in a row, and then we we're like, "This is stupid." Because <laughs> <laughs> like bad things started happening. Not even oh, for God. any reason whatsoever. <laughs> I remember one actually the artist I worked with before uh, Ulysses Farinas he uh, he fought in it once and he wore one boxing glove to fight which I'll never <laughs> which I'll never forget there was a kid that was a roommate of ours in college that was a black belt in karate and I had asked him I was like have you ever been into a fight before like out on the street he said no I haven't but I'm a black belt and I train and I do all this stuff I'm like it's different man it's, it's totally it's fucking different and one day we did, we went fight club style in the gym at Pace University. And I think like the basketball team was practicing somewhere. People were like, what are these guys doing? And yeah, I, it was a pretty good. But you decided to. I initiated that. I was like, I want basketball practice. Yeah. It was like, I don't know. They might, there might've been some intramural game or something going on the other side. <laughs> but it was a pretty big gym, but I just remember this guy was like, oh, he's in his karate uniform. And he was like a karate instructor, my roommate. And I'm like, all right, let's go. And he wasn't expecting me that I was going to go full-fledged. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Damn. I feel yeah. like the only person that can do karate is uh, Stephen Wonderboy, man. I don't know how that dude made that shit translate into being like badass as hell. But I feel like everybody else, like you see those TikToks. A dude's taking that karate stance, and then two seconds later, they are flat on the ground. Yeah. I was connecting shots with this guy, and then he did a move where I went, I ran up to him, and he just lifted his knee up and just hit me in the nuts. And I would then he was getting shots. I was just not expecting that. <laughs> and so then it's funny because after the fight, he looked like he was more fucked up than I was. Like he had black and blues all across his head. So the rest of our roommates were like, man, you got John pretty good. But I actually got, he got me good too, because I remember it's like making hamburger helper later that night or something. Then I started seeing like red spots. Like I had a little bit of a concussion. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I know. Stupid stuff. Yep. Style stuff. But yeah, that, that was just a little bit of a tangent, but Derek, one of your favorite movie scenes from any film of all time doesn't have to be the most absolute favorite, but just any scene that you like or appreciate. Oh, I sent the scene. Oh, you sent something? Yeah, 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 I was going to say, you definitely sent something. I, my apologies, man. Oh, yeah. I don't know why yes. I didn't see it. I did my shit. You did your homework. Did You're not going to get detention. Don't worry. I did it late, but it turned it in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for, I don't know why I didn't get it. My apologies. No, you're good, man. I can explain it. It's, yeah, um, explain it. All right. So it's the defibrillator scene and the thing. That's uh, John Carpenter. It was hard, man, because there's a, there's a bunch of Tarantino scenes I love. There's a bunch of early Guy Ritchie 
stuff that I love. But the, I think the thing that impacted me the most was seeing this scene at, I was probably like 11 or 12, just flipping through the channels. And all of a sudden I get to like sci-fi or something at night. And all of a sudden you're hearing windows, bring me that defibrillator over here. And he jumps them and nothing happens. And everybody's arguing. And McCready's just, McCready just got back in from the blizzard. So he's, I'm going to fucking murder all of you. If, he keeps being like, if anybody gets clipped, if anybody gets near me, we're all going to go. And they're like, you got to sleep sometime, McCready. It's like, I'm a real life sleeper, child. Like, I know this movie by like the back of my fucking hand. Okay. So, Give some context. You're talking about John Carpenter's The Thing, right? John Carpenter's The Thing, yes. Give some context for somebody that might not be familiar with the movie. movie the greatest. It's like the context for that movie is hard, but it's also so exciting if you've never fucking seen it. Sorry. Sorry to curse. If you've never seen it, man, okay. I can't give it to you. Just go watch it because like, it's a movie that came out in 82. It totally bombed somehow. But, the but it's a cult of, classic for sure. Yeah, cult classic. The visual effects, especially, but I just feel like it's such a full package movie. You know what I mean? Story's good. Visual effects are amazing. The score is great. Acting is top notch. And it's just about being isolated and not how you get this paranoia that would probably happen to you if you're isolated and cut off from the world. But then that paranoia is actually real because one of you isn't who they say they are and calamity ensues but it's about a it's about a monster it's about an alien that can mimic you and it starts just running amok through this arctic and the scene in question that sticks out for you in your mind what is the scene this is the defibrillator scene once i believe his name is niles niles passes out once creedy comes back in from the blizzard one of the characters thought that McCready was the infected. And so he cut his line while they were out walking in the blizzard to go find someone else that just died. And so they're all arguing. Niles passes out. And uh, Niles is seen as a really like good guy. He's like the non-confrontational guy. In the midst of this calamity, he just passes out. And so in the midst of him passing out, McCready somehow gets back in. So they're like, He's clearly the fucking thing because there's no way that anybody could survive. It's like an active blizzard. And so they're dealing with that. Niles is over here. He's like dead, basically. And the doctor is trying to bring him back to life. And so everyone's just everyone's just scattered at this point. There's just calamity to the left, calamity to the right. And this doctor is just trying to do his job. And so he's trying to bring this guy back to life. And the second time he pumps him, he yells clear. And the room just goes quiet. And as soon as he tries to put those charges back on that dude's chest, his chest opens up and Niles is the thing and he bites the dude's arms off. The guy is screaming and like the it keeps going up up close to the arms being like crunched. And then the guy in his like fear moment, what we would all do if something bit your hands, he rips himself back, ripping his arms off. <laughs> so he's screaming. All the dudes are just like, oh, fuck and like then all of a sudden Niles starts eating the dude's arms and transforming and so just calamity ensues like they have to burn that body and so in the midst of them burning that body Niles's head rips itself from the body and falls off and so they're like okay we just burned the body we're all good and then you get to see a second transformation Niles's head these like spider legs sprout out from its head and that thing transforms into a head spider. And like seeing this shit at 12, bro, like it I had changed never the game. Seen... It changed the game. Yeah, it fucked me up, man. It was, like I'd never seen special effects done like that. Like that shit still to this day looks pretty plausible. <laughs> like that shit. Yeah, that's looks... a good description of it, Derek, of the scene. Yeah. yeah. It makes me want to revisit that film for sure. So Definitely. I'm definitely, definitely, I have a projector over here. That's definitely getting put awesome. in the rotation. Put it on. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean, I get passionate. I didn't mean to get. No, I'm, ex I'm excited to watch that movie. You know, it's funny. My cinematographer, Alex, loves that film and it gets referenced a lot. And I haven't seen it in, since I was a kid, practically. Yeah. So I got to revisit that film for sure. Yeah. I know John Carpenter does his own music, right? He's also a musician that does his own scores, I think, right? Yeah. But Ennio Marcone. 
did the score for that one. Oh, cool. He's yep. legendary. Yep. And Tarantino sampled that for Hateful Eight. So really? Oh, that's pretty like cool. a lot of the leftovers. Yeah, yeah I know he did yep. Sergio Leone's films, Once yep. Upon a Time in the West, and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and you know, so many classic spaghetti westerns, and also Kill Bill. Yeah. Oh shit! I know. That. Yeah, the Kill Bill Part Two. Nice. Yeah. So, where could people follow along with you guys and support the comic and check out what you guys are up to? I'd say Kickstarter. There's like a show notes situation here. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, the link will be in the show notes. And to tell about the project, the project is called Urges. It's about this girl who has a crush on her best friend. But anytime anyone else tries to move in on them, she turns into a monster and kills them. And that's the log line. It's the tagline is it's not a fucked up story because it's a monster story. It's a fucked up story because it's a love story. And so it's really with all the monster and the gore and you can see what you just hearing Derek talk about the thing. You can see how crazy we get in there with the gore and stuff like that. It's really in the end, it's really about the urge, quote unquote, the urges you feel that you can't control and you have to fight. And that's and not only is it from her perspective, but from different characters' perspectives, characters that she attacks, characters that she kills, or not even that, or the her friend who she loves, who isn't into her at all, just as a friend. She also, it's her perspective of trying to look for love and the urges she feels and things like that. So it's really a exploration of that with some monster gore for guys like me and Derek to enjoy as well. Yeah, man. wonderful. Hey, we're running that Kickstarter right now. We got a goal of three grand. We are currently at about twelve hundred. Yeah, y'all want to see a really awesome comic that's just done by two dudes just trying to just get these stories off the ground, man. Support us, help us out, so we can keep making it. It's really, it, it really helps. Yeah. Yeah, and the goal with this is we want to just put out a dirty, ugly, dirty, ugly indie comic messed yep. up with the horror and the blood and the guts but with a good message maybe not even a good message thought provoking i don't want a good message i want to create thought i want you to come for the monsters and then maybe two days later when you're drinking your starbucks in traffic you're like oh yeah that scene huh you know what i mean yep. that's what we're going for so yeah it, support dirty ugly comic books and help us out a little bit and we'll keep making them excellent well derek and Eric, I appreciate you guys being on the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having us, man. Thank you. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation podcast hosted by Zef Kota. 